We took a little pause last week as we observed the Lord's Supper, but we'll get back in now to uh, the parables um, that we find in Matthew 13, the kingdom parables. And this week we'll continue with the second of these parables. Two weeks ago, if you remember, we saw the, the parable of the sower, or really as we saw it, it was the parable of the soils. And we saw that Christ sows the seed of the word in the hearts of men. And the main focus really of that parable was on the four soils or the four kinds of hearts. And just a little bit of review, we saw the stubborn heart, the shallow heart, the strangled heart, and then finally the soft heart. That the seed of the kingdom is sown, it takes root, it grows and produces fruit in our hearts tells us so much about how the kingdom of God works, grows, and exists. And we asked the question a couple of weeks ago, what kind of heart do we have? And I want to emphasize that that question is really relevant in two major ways. First, it is relevant as to whether you are a son or a daughter of the kingdom at all. That's the first application. Have you received the word of God at all for the first time? with a soft heart. But really another application and maybe more applicable for us here today as believers is that truly every time we hear or read or interact with or study God's word, we ought to pray for our hearts to be soft, to be receptive, to be good soil for the word to produce fruit each day. And we looked at some of those fruits, namely the fruit of the spirit and the fruits of righteousness. Well, in this second parable, Jesus continues that theme of planting and he continues that theme of crops and harvesting, but this one takes a little bit of a different spin. If the first parable had to do with how the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God begins and where it is found, that is in the hearts of men, the second parable has to do with how the kingdom of God grows and how it exists throughout human history. Up until this point in God, Matthew's gospel, we have heard so much about the kingdom. So we can imagine that those within earshot of Jesus teaching, they had heard even much more. The constant pronunciation that we saw in the beginning of the gospel was the kingdom was at hand. It was right there. It was the message of John the Baptist, and it was the message of Jesus. They both preached this, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. If you remember a chapter ago in Matthew 12, Jesus told the Pharisees that they, if they had to admit that his work was being done by the power of God, by the power of spirit, then that meant that the kingdom of God was upon them. He said, if it's by the spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom has come upon you. So that was the pronunciation. The, the kingdom has come. It's here. It's, it's come with Jesus. And I imagine as we read through Matthew, and we could probably assume that the question in the minds of the listeners began to be something like this. If the kingdom is truly here, why isn't it more evident? Where's the proof? Shouldn't God's kingdom be a, a swift takeover? 
Shouldn't there be an, an instant and a drastic change in the landscape of the world and of society? If, if God's rulership, that's what kingdom means, it's his kingship. If it's here, shouldn't there be more evidence? And if the kingdom is here, what about all those who don't even believe? I think that might have been the question that is unstated, but it seems to be the question that Jesus is answering uh, in this parable, the parable of the weeds. It's called different things. It's called the parable of the wheat and tares or the parable of the weeds, whatever you want to call it. It's found here in Matthew 13, beginning in verse number 24. And we'll read it in just a moment. But what comes up in this parable is the idea of a mixed sort of existence, a mixed society, a kingdom that is mingled, so to speak, with citizens among foreigners. As I was thinking and studying this week, John 17 kept coming to mind in Jesus' great prayer there, sometimes known as his high priestly prayer. And in verses 14 and 15, he prays this, and it's very applicable to what we're going to talk about today. About his followers, he says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Throughout your time in, in church, and if you've grown up as a believer, you might have heard the common phrase to be in the world, but not of it. That is living in the same world, but not in allegiance to the same kingdom. Living in the same space, but not tied to the same ideals, the same principles, the same worldview. Walking and working and dwelling together, but not having the same source, so to speak. A new reality came into being really with the coming of Jesus, the, the inauguration of the kingdom. But the question is, what does it look in a day-to-day -day life situation, in a mixed world, when we're in the world, but we're not the only ones in the world, and the world is changing? Well, this parable gives us a little bit of insight into it. It also gives us some insight into the activity of the enemy, who is identified here in this parable as the devil. If you've ever heard or read the novel Robinson Crusoe, um, you may or may not remember the name of the author, uh, Daniel Defoe, but toward the end of his life, he wrote a series of, of sort of uh, political poems, and some of them had religious undertones, and they were meant to be sort of tongue-in-cheek, a little funny. This is one of them that he wrote. He said, wherever God erects a house of prayer, the devil always builds a chapel there, and twill be found upon examination, the latter has the larger congregation. Now, maybe that is not entirely true. Maybe it is, but in a, in a joking way, it gets to the idea that the work of the enemy is very real, which is a theme that we're going to see in this parable. And since the enemy is very real, we must hold allegiance and faith to the only one who is greater. So here's the big idea as we look at this passage today. Christ's followers are good seed in a mingled crop. May we trust the Lord of the harvest to tend his kingdom. 
this is passage is sort of split, and we're going to jump a little bit today, but the parable itself is found in verses 24 through 30, and then the explanation is found beginning in verse number 36. So let's read, beginning in Matthew 13, we'll read 24 through 30. I encourage you to turn there and follow along. It says, he put another parable before them, saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, an enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them into bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Let's pause there. We'll pray and ask the Lord to help us as we look at this. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it lives. Thank you that it is active, that it's powerful, that it's relevant. Thank you that it has truth that applied not just when it was spoken and first written, but applies equally today. And knowing this, and by the illumination of the Holy Spirit, Lord, I pray that we would glean from this and learn and grow, that even now you would prepare hearts to receive it, even those of us who have followed you for years. Lord, at times we do get stiff and hard, Lord, but you can soften us once again and do that even now at this moment. Help us to see, Lord Jesus, your words here and your explanation uh, to understand and to apply. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So once again, just like the last parable, the kingdom is compared to the process of sowing seed or planting seed. And that's really an important sort of first observation because while the question that may have been in the hearer's minds is, well, why isn't the kingdom taking off quicker? Why isn't there more of a drastic change? Jesus' teaching shows us that the whole work and movement and growth of God's kingdom, it's a process. It's a process. Uh, I'm not much of a gardener. Lizzie is. And sometimes you plant seeds and it takes a while for them to sprout. It doesn't just happen instantly. Uh, that's That would be my kind of gardening. If you could plant you know, a, a cucumber seed and the next day, you've got a full plant full of cucumbers and you can eat till your heart's content, but that's not how it works. It's a process that involves patience and growth and, and care and watering and all this kind of stuff that I'm no good at, but God's pretty good at it. And he explains his kingdom as a process that's like planting seeds. We see in verse 24, the kingdom may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. Again, just like the last parable, this time there is a sower, a man who's planting seed in his field. And at that time, it could have been anybody. It could have been a servant to a landowner to a wealthy crop producer. But we read in verse number 25 that this, this man had men or he had servants. So it's, Jesus is talking about a, a prominent individual, 
the landowner here, a grower of food, and the servants would have been his day-to-day workers, the agents of the man in the fields, and they may, they may very well have done the actual sowing, but overall, the, the owner was responsible. It was his field, his crops, and his seed, and the workers reported directly to him. But verse 25, we see very quickly that the man had an enemy. It said, while his men, these servants, were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. This wouldn't have been uncommon. Uh, Causes for enemies in that day could have arisen from anything such as a a small dispute all the way back to to feuding between families and tribes that took place over the course of hundreds of years. But this enemy that Jesus talks about in his story was bold enough to take revenge or to try to get a blow in. So he does something that that was just honestly dastardly, although it wouldn't have been uncommon At this time, there was a law on the Roman books against the the sowing or the oversowing of seed in a field. The nefarious oversowing of seed in a field. What does that mean? Well, it's, it's exactly what we read about here. This parable goes that the man and his servants went out and they sowed good seed. And then that night, the enemy came and oversowed the field with weeds or your translation may say tears. The word is, is zizania. It's not something we've heard of, but you might have heard of the word darnell. Darnell is a weed that is, that is practically indistinguishable from wheat while it is growing. And this is something that has been around for centuries. It has been a problem for centuries. Uh, I read an article earlier this week online called Wheat's evil twin has been intoxicating humans for centuries. And it was an article all about this this Darnell weed, which was around and would have been the main culprit of this sort of thing, even in Jesus' day. So it's probably what he was referring to here. It's something they would have been familiar with. It's this wheat-like crop that was sown, and it grew up, and it looked just like the wheat until the heads formed. That's when you could tell the difference. Darnell was a a big problem among wheat growers in Jesus' day. Uh, Some people estimate that up to 10% of all the wheat harvest was infested with this Darnell. And the problem was not just that it was a weed and took up growing space. The problem was that it was deadly if it was consumed in too high of quantities. So a wheat harvest that was infested with too much Darnell was ruined and it was unmarketable. And the other interesting thing about Darnell is that it's it's not self-propagating. In our yard down at the parsonage, we have Japanese knotweed. That is self-propagating. You kill it, it grows back. You kill it, it spreads. It grows back bigger and stronger and better. Well, Darnell, though a weed, was not like that. It had to be sown and cared for just like the wheat did. It required the direct sowing, and it really required the existence of the wheat itself, because that crop would have been tended and cared for as a cash crop, whereas the Darnell would have just been burned. Darnell, again, is indistinguishable from the wheat until the heads form. That's when it looks different. It's different, you could say, in fruit. And that sort of ties it to the last parable, because that, the end of the last parable, was all about fruit as well. 
keep those things in mind as we read on. Verse 26 and 27, when the plants came and bore grain, the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said, Master, did you not sow good seed? How, does then, how then does it have weeds? Well, the men of the master come to him in verse 27, and they say, didn't you sow good seed? In a large operation like this, these servants may have done the planting, but the master would have been in charge of inspecting the seed, of going over its quality. And he did that. And he assured them that, yes, it was good seed, but it was an enemy who had done this. If you put yourself in the story as this master and you had neighbors who haven't been so kind to you over the years, you might immediately begin to imagine just who the enemy might be. That's kind of the idea here. So the servants ask a fitting question. Well, do you want us to pull them up and take care of them now? And that might have been a a good thing to do. It might have been the common tactic to just get rid of that Darnell weed as soon as it was able to be identified. But interestingly, the master in this story had a different tactic. It was a tactic of patience, one that would preserve the most amount of wheat, though it would require some careful separating at harvest time. The master said, no, lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first, and bind them to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Gathering the Darnells first at the harvest time would have been a tricky task. You remember it said the enemy came and sowed them among the wheat, which means not just there was a spot of Darnell in the middle of the crop, but literally you could imagine between every blade of wheat, there might have been a blade of Darnell. It would have been tedious work to separate out that Darnell crop first and then harvest the wheat and the separation would be costly but it would produce the best crop given the action of the enemy and it would be the most thorough way to rid be rid of the darnell because at that point when the fruit was there it would be clearly distinguishable so this master was a wise master though it would take much work he had a good plan The Darnell would be bound up and burned and eradicated, and the wheat would be gathered into the master's barn as a successful crop despite the work of the enemy. Yes, this master had a plan almost as if he had anticipated the attack to begin with. This is an interesting parable, isn't it? Uh, Just like the last one, Jesus gives an explanation when the disciples ask him, so We can lean heavily on that, but you've probably already picked up some of the big ideas in the parable just reading through it. And between the parable and the explanation, Jesus gives two other short parables that also have to do with the growth of the kingdom. I think that continues to show that Jesus is answering that silent question. Why isn't your kingdom taking over, Jesus? And we'll save those other two parables for next week, but let's continue on. We'll see lessons from this parable. We see that Jesus gives the explanation only to his followers. Uh, He leaves the interpretation of the crowd up to themselves. He, He comes back into the house, the same house they were at in chapter 12, but apparently he had told this story to the multitudes. 
And last week, we spent a lot of time, or two weeks ago, asking and answering the question, why do you speak in parables? But here, Matthew gives another explanation, and just like Matthew always does, it has to do with fulfillment. Look at verse number 34. It says, all these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. And this was to fill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Matthew refers to Psalm 78 here, which was written by Asaph. And Asaph was quite a man. He's, he was a psalmist, a poet. He's also referred to in the Old Testament as a prophet. And Matthew says this was a, a prophecy in poetry form that had to do with Jesus. Very interesting. And Jesus, through his parables, is answering questions about how God works that had been mysteries for millennia. And that's, that's a good way to view these parables. When Jesus says the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is like this, you could almost say, this is what it looks like when God is working. This is what it is like when God is at work. And so this parable of the weeds gives us some insight, especially with Jesus' explanation as to what it looks like when God is at work in the world. We see, beginning in verse number 30, 37, that all the necessary details are explained to us by Jesus, and that's very helpful. Let's read beginning in verse number 37. After the disciples had asked him to explain the parable of the weeds, he says, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Let's stop there. Let's just walk through that for a moment. The one who sows is the son of man. That is the master of the field. He's the owner of the whole operation, the, the one in charge. Of course, as we've already seen, son of man is a, a messianic title for Jesus himself. We see it in the Old Testament, in Ezekiel, and Daniel. And we've now seen it referred to Jesus several times in Matthew alone. Uh, so Jesus is the master sower. He might use his servants to accomplish it, but he's in charge of it. The good seed is the sons of the kingdom. Now, I think the first two parables come together in this regard because the good soil from the first parable produced fruit. And now the good seed in the second parable are the sons of the kingdom, or you could say the sons and the daughters of the kingdom. The seed in the first parable was the word of God and Sown in good soil, it produced fruit. And where do more seeds for fruit come from? Well, it comes from the fruit itself. So in an analogous way, you could say uh, to refer to men and women, the sons and daughters of the kingdom as seeds, makes that connection between these two. The sons of the kingdom, that's probably a play on a term that the Jews would have been familiar with, the, the sons of light are those who were good soil and received the word of the Son of Man. And now they're sown into the kingdom 
in his field. Which leads us to the next part. The field that we read here, Jesus explains, is the world. The field is the world. That's important to know. Uh, the world is a, a general term. It, it's our place of existence. It's in a specific way, it's it's the ordered society that we dwell in. It's important to note that because the field is not specifically the church. Although the church is in the world, and Jesus had the word for church in his vocabulary, he will he'll use it in Matthew 18. He doesn't use it here because the parable is not about the church specifically, but about the kingdom as a whole. For instance, members of Ira Baptist Church maybe, hopefully are, sons and daughters of the kingdom, but our local gathering here is not the entirety of the kingdom in our area. There are hundreds, thousands perhaps even, of other sons and daughters of the kingdom, even in Rutland County. It's also important to remember that Jesus' audience wouldn't have had any idea of what the church was at this point, as we would have it revealed later on in the New Testament. To them, God's people were simply Israel and and maybe some proselytes who had followed the law. Jesus then, in this parable, was opening their eyes to the fact that the whole world was God's field, God's workplace, and that sons of the kingdom would be sown everywhere, not just in Palestine, not just in their little part of the world, but everywhere. Now, for our benefit, we could say that that while the church is, is not the kingdom as a whole, the church is a microcosm of the kingdom in the world. That is, if the kingdom of God is where he rules and reigns in the hearts of men and women, then the church should be a little glimpse of the kingdom life here and now. But anyways, the kingdom is sons of the kingdom sown in the world, a world that we see next, is oversown with sons of the evil one. When we read on, we read that the enemy is the devil. That's been the enemy from the beginning, always seeking to subvert and destroy what God has planted and sown. It's no surprise that this theme continues in this parable because we see it's a pattern that has been happening from the dawn of time. It sort of broadens the scope of this parable all the way back to the beginning with those first humans, Adam and Eve, where that same enemy, the devil, sought to sort of oversow what God had done with his deception. The kingdom may be inaugurated in a new and a special way with the coming of Jesus, but God has always been at work and the enemy has always been at work as well. And finally, the last element that Jesus gives is that the harvest is the end of the age. So this broadens the scope too. So now the enemy, who's been at work since the beginning, and the harvest, which is the end of the age. So now this parable is covering God's work throughout all time. It may have specific references to Jesus' time and his ministry, but the ideas in it are true from eternity. The end of the age is kind of a big term. It doesn't give us a specific timestamp. It doesn't give us a year, a month, or a day, but it simply means 
the end of the known existence. Uh, your translation might read the, the end of the world, but needless to say, it's, it's future. It's the last things. And Jesus refers to his angels as reapers doing his bidding at the judgment. So that's the explanation that Jesus gives of all these details. So I want to work from that. And for the last few minutes, I want to give some, some lessons that we can take from this parable. And if you have your bulletin, you can follow along there. The first thing we see, letter A, is that we live in a mingled kingdom. We live in a mingled kingdom. All of, ex all of existence has been a mingled existence. There have always been, from the first, sons of darkness and sons of light. But in a unique way, since the coming of Jesus and the spread of the gospel around the whole world, we truly see a mingled world. There are believers and followers of Jesus almost everywhere. Now, yes, there are still many people and places unreached, and we pray each week that Jesus would send laborers to those places. But by and large, vast swaths of the world have been exposed to the word of God, and there are sons and daughters of the kingdom in every corner of the globe. And even with that radical advancement over the last 2,000 years, we very much live in a mingled kingdom. And it's mingled really in two different ways. First, it's mingled in the sense that the sons of the kingdom are surrounded by those who aren't sons of the kingdom. Many times that is apparent. There are those individuals and mindsets and ideologies that are just absolutely counter-righteous, absolutely counter-God and counter-Scripture. That's why Jesus prayed in John 17. I don't ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. So in that sense, we are in the world, but not of it. And we are not to be taken out of the world, at least not yet. We are meant to live in this mingled environment. And because of that, we should expect the difficulties that arise because of that. When we understand that we are part of a different kingdom, it's no wonder that there's culture shock and a lack of continuity. If you've ever visited another country, especially an Eastern one, you would notice immediately that there's almost nothing that is the same. Nothing can be assumed or taken for granted. Language, custom, expectations, etiquette, food, tradition, nothing is the same. And so goes the analogy. The sons of the kingdom will be different than the sons of the evil one. There is culture shock. It's intended that way. But it's also mingled in another sense, because part of the imagery of this parable is deception. Remember that Darnell weed looks like wheat until it proves otherwise. Well, Jesus had already given us warning about those who look like something but prove to be another. Back in the Sermon on the Mount, he said in Matthew 7, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Paul picks up on this idea in 2 Corinthians 11, speaking of, of the devil and his workers. He said, no wonder even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. 
So it's no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. There will be those who look like sons of the kingdom, but will prove to be otherwise. That's a sad reality. It's disheartening, but it is to be expected. Just like the Pharisees who were, who were the religious elite in their day, yet they were proving to be sons of the evil one by their rejection of Jesus. So there will be those throughout the age who take on the appearance of wheat, but prove to be weeds by their fruit. So we live in a mingled kingdom. Second thing, though, we see is this, and this is an important one. The enemy is real. A major theme of this parable is the work of the devil, the enemy. Now, I like to give Satan as little credit as possible. Uh, I don't like to give him credit for things he hasn't done. You know, every time I fail in my life, I don't say, ah, the devil did it again. No, it's usually my fault. But, uh, Here in this parable, Jesus does give a lot of weight to the work of the enemy. He says his work is quite prominent, so we shouldn't miss this. He is influential in the world. He is influential in society. And while he's not as powerful as the Son of Man, he is still powerful. Which is why Peter reminds us in 1 Peter 5 that we are to be sober-minded and watchful because your enemy or your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a lion, seeking someone to devour. Dear ones, spiritual warfare in the world is real. The devil has proven himself to be a tactful and wise foe from the very beginning. He seems to know just how and when to sneak in, just how to twist his words and appeals to make them sound good. And as we read in 2 Corinthians, he disguises himself even as a messenger of light, and his servants do the same. So this should cause us to be sober, to have a a clear mind, to be vigilant, to be watchful, not sleeping on our post, watching out for his tactics, praying for wisdom and strength, recognizing that, that we are weak compared to the devil, but that Jesus, our master, is stronger and wiser. We also should note, that the devil's plan extends throughout the whole of society. But so does God's kingdom, and so do his kingdom's sons and daughters. Letter C, we see not only uh, do we live in a mingled kingdom and the enemy is real, but we also see from this parable that the judgment is real. Pick up our text in verse number 40. Jesus says, just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Although oftentimes these parts... scripture would be better to ignore from a human standpoint. We can't read this parable without realizing the heaviness of this warning. In the story, the the reapers, they go and they they bind up the Darnell weed and they, they put it into bunches and they burn it. And Jesus says that imagery is of what the judgment at the end of the age will be like. 
Now, there are two sides of this coin. From one sense, and this is going to sound strange, but it's a cause for rejoicing because it's a victory for righteousness and the vindication of our Lord. But the other side of the coin is that it's cause for sober consideration, that there is such a judgment and that according to Jesus' explanation, not everyone will escape it. The Son of Man, he says, will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers. Literally, those things that cause others to stumble or those people who cause others to stumble, they will be gathered up. There's that idea of influence again. Whether these are the workers of the enemy or those who deceive and place snares in in the way of men, they will be gathered up. But the angels will also gather up not just those who cause others to stumble, but they will also gather the lawbreakers, literally the workers of lawlessness. Who is this? It's everyone who is not a son of the kingdom. And remember, Going back to where much of this began, as we read in Matthew 5, you cannot enter the kingdom without true righteousness. Uh, Righteousness that is even beyond the moral righteousness of the Pharisees. Righteousness that is from above, that fills heart and life. True righteousness. That is a sober warning. And if you have ears to hear, hear it. Listen to these words. And cry out to the master of his harvest. Like that old hymn that we sang, Come ye sinners, poor and needy. Hear that invitation. It's a real invitation. And the need to respond to it is real as well. By God's grace, will you say, yes, I will arise and go to Jesus. He will embrace me in his arms. And that is true, dear one. For in our Lord Jesus Christ, you will find a merciful and faithful savior. But hear his words of warning. Verse number 43, though, gives another side of the judgment because he says, then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. This picture seems to come out of Daniel 12, which makes sense because Daniel prophesies much about the Messiah and his work. And in Daniel 12, 3, we read that Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. The imagery is similar there, the connection, that idea of of shining in righteousness, giving glory to God. But the ones who shine in the book of Daniel are those who turn many to righteousness. So do you see a, a contrast there? Those who are bound up, to be burned are those who cause the others to stumble. Those who shine like the sun, though, in the kingdom of the Father are those who turn, many rather, to righteousness. So there is influence there as well. There is influence in those who cause others to stumble and sin, but there is influence with the wheat, the sons of the kingdom as well. And this is not explicit in the parable, but think of it this way. Everyone who is now wheat was once a weed. There is a way to become wheat in God's field. 
There is a way to be transformed from that Darnell weed to a true fruitful stock of wheat in God's kingdom. That way is to come to Christ and have a change of heart, a change of mind, and a new creation to be turned from a son of darkness to a son of light, a son of evil to a son of the kingdom. That way is through Jesus Christ, his forgiveness, his atonement. Again, the question, will you come to him? And the final lesson we see from this parable is this. The final judgment is not our duty. This lesson goes back to the question that the men asked their master. They, they saw the weeds coming up and they saw that it was Darnell and they said, well, do you want us to go gather them out now? But he said, no, unless in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. We live again in a mingled kingdom and only the Lord of that kingdom truly has wisdom to know who is or who will be a son of the kingdom. After all, the whole idea of God's kingdom is, is of process, of growth, of transformation. And that's of society, but it's also of people, of individuals. One may be a son of darkness who has not yet become a son of light. So who are we to uproot and demand a pure society of only kingdom citizens when none of us were to begin with? Again, this is also why it's important to distinguish that Jesus is not speaking specifically of the church because we are called in scripture to, to put out from the church those who prove to be enemies. But what we are not called to do is to put out from the world those who are not Christians. I can think of two major instances in history, and there are many more, where Christians missed this lesson. One of those is the Inquisitions where the church was seeking to purify by the sword everyone under its influence. And in this case, many true believers were killed under the name of, of purity. Another would be the Crusades, where many people were killed by Christians over the control of the holy sites in Palestine. In both of those cases, people who claimed to be sons of the kingdom took up the sword in vain. But we are not called as the church to purify society by force. You remember uh, in another place in the Gospels when James and John, they asked Jesus, they said, Jesus, can we just call down fire from heaven right now? And of course he rebuked them. Of course not. That's the same idea here, dear ones. We are not called by force to purify all those who are not sons of the kingdom. You and I, listen, you and I, were weeds at one point. And we could have been as easily on the other side of that attack, but for the grace of God. We may look at a group of people or a, a person and we might say, there is no way that individual could ever be converted. There is no way that person could ever come to the Lord. But we discount the power of Christ in the gospel. We discount stories starting in scripture, like of the Apostle Paul, who went from killing Christians to being perhaps the most famous Christian who ever lived. We discount the fact that we live in a mingled kingdom and that that kingdom being mingled is a sign of God's patience. 
2 Peter 3, verses 8 and 9 says this. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. And the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. You know what question Peter was answering when he wrote that? He was answering the question, why hasn't the Lord come back yet? Isn't he taking an awful long time? Do you realize that God was patient with you until you came to be a son or a daughter of the kingdom? And do you realize that God displays immense patience with you every day while you grow and learn righteousness? So who are we? Those who were once Darnell weeds ourselves to cast condemnation on others who may soon be wheat by the grace of God. And remember those words in Daniel, that those who shine in the kingdom are those who turn others to righteousness. Christian, if you are good seed in the world, then trust the master of the harvest in his work. Follow his commands to spread the word like seed in this world. Think of the last parable where we don't know what kind of soil an individual might be. It's not ours to judge. It is the Lord's to judge, and he will. But for now, we are sons and daughters of the kingdom in a mingled world. And may we use every amount of gospel truth that we can proclaim to spread his glory. Until one day, as he promised here, the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear.